Joel, the book of Joel, uh, page 873 in, a, in the Pew Bible. That would be helpful to you. You can turn there. 873 in the Pew Bible. Joel 3, verse 17 to 21. This is the last uh, message that I will have on Joel. And um, as we look at this text, I'm going to back up just, just slightly um, to kind of pull together uh, this paragraph with what we've seen before. I'm going to start reading at verse 16, if you could follow along with me. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Now the first verse that I read talks about the Lord roaring from Zion and from Jerusalem. And if we read that too quickly, we might actually say that a lion roars from Zion. And as I read that verse, my mind immediately jumps to a children's fantasy series called The, called the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe based on a fictitious land called Narnia. And I would be curious, how many have perhaps, do you, have you ever read this book? If, how many... Oh, okay. All right. Or maybe you've seen some of the, the, the movies that have been based upon it. So, okay, so I'm not completely off the wall here. Um, but I would encourage you to, uh, to read them or even watch the videos because they are truly, truly remarkable. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote these books, and uh, he was trying to communicate the storyline of the Bible um, in a way that would be kind of cohesive and kind of bring it together for kids. Now, obviously, it's fantasy, and you have to kind of read a little bit deeper into it to see the connections to the biblical storyline. Um, but he felt that, uh, that this was a helpful uh, tool to communicate to um, atheists. He said that as he had been an atheist, uh, reading, reading the story and seeing it as like a, a myth, like a, a story that speaks to the soul, was very helpful for him as an atheist. He saw Christianity as a true kind of myth that spoke and resonated with his heart in a way that no other story out there could do. And he felt like there should be some sort of like children's version of this. And so he talked about uh, Christianity being like a true kind of story um, that resonates. And that's the truth. 
science as a structure doesn't speak to the humanity that, that we have. And if you think about the stories that are out there on the big silver screens, uh, things like the Star Wars trilogy and the, sec, the, the six versions of it and the multiverses, all of those things speak to the soul in such a way that other factual things don't. And in, in trying to create a sense of cohesion between everything is something that we do as people. And so I personally find that the books of Narnia are, are incredibly uh, encouraging to me as I was a young uh, child and teenager reading some of these stories. But the last battle, the last battle is probably the crowning glory in his series of, of books. And the last battle ends the struggle for mastery of that world called Narnia. And it resolves a continual conflict that comes up between uh, light and darkness and truth and lies and justice and abuse. And it, it brings it all to a conclusion and it really tells the biblical storyline of the future Antichrist and the closing of the world story and the return of the high king, the only king. And it's a beautiful address and, and it's the storyline uh, there's this, uh, d allow me just to tell a little bit of the story. Um, there's this ape that, drive, that uh, dresses up a donkey like a lion and then claims that this is Aslan the lion, the, the lord of Narnia, and he's deceiving the residents and all the little animals that live in the forest of Narnia that this is the actual lion and what he does is he manipulates the world to come and serve his interests and uh, those who actually see through the deception are rewarded with an entrance into the true narnia or the final kingdom where they will live forever with this real lion free from deception free from darkness free from abuse and free from sorrow so as you hear some of the plot line, you can kind of also see that these are parallel thoughts to Scripture. And as the, the, the closing of Narnia takes place, the stars begin to fall like silver rain, and they just keep falling. And gradually a complete blackness occurs in Narnia. It's a complete emptiness. It was an emptiness that could be felt. And as the old world was burning out, Aslan brings the faithful creatures through a door into a new world. Now, I felt like it was worth telling you a little bit of that story today because in a larger way, Joel has been talking about a similar kind of storyline. He has been talking about a world that has become a wasteland, a devastation and one day that world is going to be replaced with a totally new and glorious world, a new heaven and a new earth that will be ours to live upon, in which uh, the mountains will drip with wine. It will be a beautiful, spectacular place where all sin and sorrow has been removed. Uh, like uh, the, old uh, the old prophet Jonah, Joel is very confident in the Lord being gracious and merciful. He's willing to bet everything upon Him who will receive people who turn from their sins and trust in Him. And He also knows that God is very patient with the world. 
And one day, though, that patience is going to dry up and the lion will roar and defeat his enemies and then usher us into a new heaven and a new earth. And the world will end as we know it and all the darkness, all the lies, all the abuse will one day be no more. And we also, like those residents of Narnia, will pass through a doorway where the mountains will drip with, with wine. The whole earth, including His people, God's people, will be filled and they will be satisfied with His holiness and we will be happy with Him forever. And so that I'm using this grand story idea to lead us through this text so that as we see the imagery here, we understand where Joel is going. Uh, and Joel is talking about when Christ comes. When Christ comes, His holiness will be communicated to us as people, and it will turn into our own happiness. What keeps us from being happy is sin and the destruction that brings within all of our lives. One day, that will all be done away with. And so, I'm going to look at the verses 17 to the end, primarily this morning. And I want us to see, in verse 17, um, the description of God's holy mountain where His king uh, throne will reside and one day we will see. And in verse 17, He says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and the Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. I want you to see three features of this holiness that will permeate the world. There is going to be a complete holiness. A complete holiness. This is the first time in the book of Joel that we come across this word holy. Now this word holy, um, being attached to the city of Jerusalem, is unique because it says something by its absence at other points in the book of Joel. In other words, Jerusalem is not a holy place right now. It's not filled with the glory of God. Another prophet, uh, Zechariah, said this, anticipating the holiness that will come to God's holy city. In this way, he said, I have returned to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That's talking about the Lord God Almighty. Return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And if you spend time reading Zechariah's prophecy, you start to realize that he's talking about a pervasive holiness that permeates everything, um, right down to implements of daily living. There's pots and pans and bells that are described as being holy, and even bells on the horse's bridles are engraved with these words, holy to the Lord. Now that may sound pretty obsessive. Everything marked as being set apart and holy. But I want to ask us this question, do we really understand, do we know what holiness is? Holiness is an infinite purity that corresponds to God's very nature. Maybe you've heard this illustration before of ivory soap. 
ivory soap for a number of years, back I think in the 60s and 70s, it was uh, once sold as 99.44% pure. 44 over 100. I don't know how they calculated that. That illustration is somewhat helpful, but not helpful at the same time. Because it illustrates, yes, that God's nature is above anything that we can refine ourselves and make pure, but it tends to cause us to think of God as a quantity. A quantity. As if that's how he relates to the world. Now, I want you to think about it from this standpoint. No one, at least I hope no one describes me as 99.44% John Banks. Like I'm the pure, nearly pure authentic self. Rather, they know me by my character and by my integrity and how I relate towards them or the lack thereof. You relate to me as a person, not as a widget. And that's how it is with God. God's very nature is seen by how He relates to the world. And He has an infinite hatred for evil. He has an infinite love for that which is wholesome and good. And this is the result of His infinite holy nature, how He relates and how He loves and how He brings judgment. And I think it's helpful for us to ask ourselves a secondary question. Do we realize the scope of God's holiness? Nothing and nobody is holy unless everyday activity is holy. You think about pots and pans in the New Jerusalem being you know, dedicated and set apart and not used for things that would be unholy. Everyday things significant to the Lord. And Paul put it this way. He said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, So whatsoever you, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But does God really care? about pots, pans? Does God really care about bells and meat and what we drink and what we eat? No, He doesn't. He cares about people. And He cares about what comes out of our hearts and how we relate to one another. That is infinitely more important to God than anything else. In other words, He cares about how we love one another. Without love, holiness is incomplete. We may have the appearance of holiness and be completely, completely unholy. We may have a shirt and a tie on this morning, and be completely unholy because we're not loving those around us. 
we may have the appearance of holiness and be completely. See, God's scope of holiness is all-pervasive because God is infinitely love and how He expresses Himself and how He guards His purity and how He relates, though, to redeem people, that's a demonstration of His nature and His character. He so is against sin that He creates an alternative way to come into relationship with Him. That's love, but yet a hatred of sin. That's His holy nature. And He doesn't want us to use our pots and pans and bells and meat and drink to harm and affect other people. We all have preferences. We all have things that we enjoy. God does not want us to use our preferences to bludgeon one another to death. Brothers and sisters, I have come, it's come to my attention that some have been hurt by strong vocalization of displeasure for the preferences that others have found helpful for them in their walk with the Lord. God does not care. God does not care about eating and drinking, pots and pans, Bible versions. God does not care about music preferences. He cares about how we relate to one another. He cares about how we are concerned for one another. Holiness is how we care for one another in the matter of non-essentials. Christ did not die for non-essentials. He didn't die for pots and pans. Christ died for people. And we have to love people. That's true holiness. But there is a joyful holiness that will be ours when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 17, we see the holiness of God acting almost like a Rottweiler. It says, Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through there. I don't know about you, but when I was a young boy, I got bit by a German shepherd. And while I'm not necessarily fearful of dogs today, per se, I'm always cautious when I see a big dog running towards me. My first thought when I see a, a big dog running towards me, bounding, is not necessarily joy in my heart. It's actually kind of like, Ugh! You see, the holiness of God is designed to keep strangers out of his city and to allow his family in to his city. See, the holiness of God terrorizes those who are not part of his family. For those who have become familiar with God's kindness, there is also a sensitivity to his, his awesomeness, his his dreadfulness in the sense that he, he had to condemn sin and so he even took that on himself. There was no other way to do it. His holiness requires that kind of payment for sins. But you know, for those who have come to believe and trust in Jesus as their personal Savior, the holiness of God is no longer a dread. It is now 
a comfort. It is a refuge. It is a place of security. I mentioned the other prophet, Zechariah, talking about pots and pans and bells and, and all in this new Jerusalem. And he also described a scenario where it would be a place where there would be joyful community in which boys and girls would be out playing in the streets and the old, older folks leaning on their staffs would be sitting out watching those kids play. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor of just the, the security of, of just enjoying without the sense that someone's going to walk by and harm me. That's all going to be done away. And it's a beautiful metaphor that without anything that would cause us to tremble before the Lord, in other words, all sin has been removed, there will be great liberty to enjoy community. We'll be able to play in the streets without any kinds of fear. But I want us to see, and I want us to appreciate, I'm talking about this new heaven, this new earth, but there is hope even for us today that he who began a work in you is going to continue to do that work throughout your life, purging you from sin, so that you become more like him over time. There is a progressiveness to this holy. Yes, there's going to be a completeness when he comes. But if we've repented and we've believed the gospel, we have been given the Holy Spirit to reside within our hearts. The gift of the Holy Spirit provides to us a new appetite. It gives us a new taste for God and what He, de- he delights in. Prior to salvation, we were like those uh, strangers that are kind of nervous to enter into His house or His city. But when we know that because of the holiness of Jesus, we are accepted by Him, we begin to grow in a conviction of things that we've not yet seen. We become very confident that one day He's going to come again not to bring His thunderbolts to me, but He's going to be coming to give me reward for being faithful to Him. He's like a father who delights to give good things to his children. And so the Holy Spirit puts this confidence within your heart, and it's like a seed which sprouts and then gradually over time, it gets into this larger tree. It becomes, you, there's this progressive growth that takes place in your heart so that you are more confident in your relationship with Him. 1 John 3, verse 2 to 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will we be has not yet, been, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Now it's beautiful because this is all kind of like coming around full circle. We anticipate the completeness of holiness one day in eternity. We're in a process of growth now And God's intention is that we are to be holy as He is holy. And God's intention for Christians is to have the Holy Spirit working within their lives, causing us to come to a state of gradual completion. This gradual completion will take place 
when we see him and see the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I've spent a good deal of time talking about holiness this morning, but there are two additional features that we ought to take note of this morning in this text. And, and the second feature is that God's hungry people will be satisfied. God's hungry people will be satisfied. Verse 18, uh, we read this, And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. And I see in this text, and also based upon the larger book of Joel, that attempting to bring satisfaction to your own needs without the presence of God is disastrous. You will find true satisfaction in the presence of God. Earlier messages in the book of Joel focused upon a country that was obsessed with luxury, obsessed with, with fine drinks and what we might call the finer things. They're distracted by the pursuit of the finer things in life. And there were people that had become so obsessed over these things, they had become drunkards, and, but they couldn't even see the problem even as the sweet wine was being taken away and their whole nation was starting to crumble and there was all these locusts coming in and destroying all of their crops and harvests, they couldn't see and make the connection that, that, there's, that their attempt to satisfy themselves was bringing them their own ruin. And I think it's important that we not minimize the real world that we're living in, that it does call us and, and attracts us to luxury. It does. And it corrupts the heart. I was reading recently a, a, um, the story of the adventures of Telemachus, which is a, um, <laughs> he's this fictitious son of Ulysses. Uh, it's, a, it's a story of how the son of Ulysses uh, wanders the world trying to figure out his way in the world, and he has a, a mentor who's traveling with him. His father is kind of out of his life his, at a time when he really should have had a father figure helping him. But Telemachus uh, encounters a, a trial in which he's tempted to engage with luxury, and his mentor says to him, he says this of young princes, he says, Princes who have not known adversity are unworthy of happiness. They are drained of energy by luxury, and they become intoxicated by pride. Now that is a perennial, kind of evergreen type of truth that kind of is important for every one of us to recognize. And it is probably something that someone like Alexander the Great should have taken to heart himself, if you know the story of his life and how it ended, he conquered the whole known world in, a, in the fastest, in the, in the most speedy time frame ever, and then he drunk himself to death on wine. He had a severe cirrhosis of the liver that developed, and he died. He had everything that he could ever have wanted, and it killed him. Now, that's what the pursuit of luxury 
will do to you. And the desire for beauty, the desire for quality and excellence is not necessarily wrong things in of themselves. But if our love for the finer things causes us to love those things more than obedience to Christ, it will destroy us. It will lead us into slavery. It will bring about an untimely death. It will draw us away from Christ, and the spirit of Antichrist will hound us. I referred to the last battle earlier in the sermon, but there's a, little, there's a couple of lines in which the ape promises some really nice things for the residents of Narnia, and he's the spirit of Antichrist, if you will. And he, he says, if you would just but follow me and trust in my power, he says, it will be all for your good. We'll be able with the money that you earn to make Narnia a country worth living in. There'll be oranges and bananas that are pouring in. There'll be roads and there'll be big cities. There'll be schools. There'll be offices. There'll be whips. There'll be muzzles. There'll be cages. There'll be kennels. And then there'll be prisons. You see the trajectory there? The promising of like, all these animals are wanting like an unlimited supply of like apples and bananas, but it ends in captivity by following the wrong voice. Finding satisfaction. We all want satisfaction. It, it can only be found, though, in the presence of God. That's where it can only be found. And that's why Joel says, in that day, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. You wanted the sweet wine on tap all the time and you're just laying there and it's like a funnel coming towards you? It ends in destruction. But God's going to give these things to you in His presence. A new, the feature of the new heaven and new earth will be that there shall out of the throne of God there will flow a stream of water and river. Uh, you see at the end of verse 18 it says and there shall be a fountain that shall come forth from the house of the lord and then water the whole valley of uh, that word shittim is is acacia uh, scraggly types of wood trees that grow in very arid places and he's that's all going to be like bountiful again and this brings us to the book of revelation the very last words of the book of revelation tell us this, that an angel showed John, the apostle, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. And so what this is telling us is that we can trust in our Heavenly Father that He will bring us everything that we desire. We can learn to discern even truth for today because trusting in our own wisdom to think we'll be able to get what we really want will lead to a barrenness when God promises to give us everything that we so desire. Just ask the woman at the well. In Samaria, she went to go get water at the, the hottest time of the day so that she wouldn't have to engage with any other people. And when she got there, she found Jesus sitting there. 
And Jesus challenged her and said, if you would repent of trying to do life your own way, I will give you a water that will give you the satisfaction you're looking for. And so she was confronted, but also given the opportunity to receive. And Jesus said this, he said, the water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now we're living right now in the in-between. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. It's a signal that one day we will be brought into a kingdom where there will be a massive waterfall that will come in which all the mountains will drip. There will be a beauty to this, sweetness to this new world that we're going to enter into. Now the Holy Spirit gives us initially a sense, a longing, a patience, an endurance to wait and enter into that kingdom that's coming. And when Christ comes, we will find the satisfaction that we so desire. There's a third aspect here in this text that we need to see as Joel's winding down. He gives comfort to those who are oppressed. And he says that God's persecuted people will, become, will be vindicated. And as we come to these concluding verses, I'm not going to take great time to, to wade deeply into them, but only point you that, to the fact that these are several allusions to perpetual enemies that God's people have encountered throughout time. Egypt captured and enslaved the Jews. Edom was a nearby neighbor who continually uh, was a thorn in their side and caused them all kinds of problems. They did violence to God's people. And so, in verse 19, we read, "...and Egypt shall become a desolation." Edom shall become a desolate wilderness for the violence that they have done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And I see in these two people groups that there is an oppressiveness an Egyptian slavery type of impress, uh, oppressiveness that will one day be done away with. There is also a hostility and hatred that will come to an end. And I see this in the people of Edom. Now the Edomites are a little bit less familiar because we still hear the national name e Egypt today. But Edom, the descendants of Edom will go all the way back to to the twin brother of Jacob, whose name was Esau. And there was a historic rivalry that took place between the two. They were both grandsons of Abraham. But God had determined that he would do good by Jacob and, and, and leave Edom, leave Esau, and the blessing would go towards Jacob. Now you can imagine the kind of difficulty that would create within the family if 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 it was known that Jacob was going to get the, the blessing and Esau wasn't. Favoritism is a terrible plague in any family. And that was just the start. 
through the centuries, they oppressed uh, Israel through the ages. And as, they, as Israel was coming up out of Egypt, as they were moving towards Canaan to claim their land, Edom would not allow them to pass through their territory at all. They became an obstacle to them. And when the nation had been in existence in that land for many, many centuries, Nebuchadnezzar came and he attacked Israel. It was Edom, the nearby neighbors, who blocked roads and would not allow the refugees that were fleeing the city to enter into their lands. They turned them around and took them and sent them back to be captives by Nebuchadnezzar. Horrible, horrible disrespect and uncaring concern for others who were in need. We're going to get more into that detail later in the book of Obadiah. But the truth is that's, that's communicated is that rivalry, contentions, and pride will one day be put to an end. One day, all of that will be gone. We as Christians still struggle with our flesh. We ought to be putting away those kinds of rivalries, those kinds of proud effects that appear out of our hearts towards other people. The Lord God is an advocate. He's an advocate that you don't want to meet in court. If you're oppressing somebody, He's going to make sure that you do not succeed. The Lord will avenge His people. It says there He didn't take action initially, but He is coming back and He will bring action. God will put an end to all pride when He comes and we will no longer be in competition with other people around us. So when Christ comes, His holiness will become our happiness. God's people will truly be happy. They will be satisfied. They will be uh, vindicated. These are all things that we can be looking forward to. Paul says this, in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard what God has prepared for them who love Him. I really appreciate those who try to imagine what it might be like. I, I really, as I mentioned, I, I love how C.S. Lewis talked about a new land that was entered into that was sweeter than, than the old Narnia that was left behind. And the creatures who, who walked through that doorway as their old world was dying, found that the world that they entered into was a lot like the one they had left. Yet at the same time, it was more wonderful. Everything was vibrant and deeper. Every rock, every flower, every blade of gra grass looked like it meant more. And when the decaying effects of sin are removed from the world around us, and the holiness of God permeates the world, we will find a new happiness in creation. We shall be caught up in those days into the world which we were meant to inhabit. Inhabit with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the creatures in that story said this as he entered into the new land and he recognized and he said what everyone else was thinking. He said this, I have come home at last. 
This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. And the reason that we love this old world is sometimes it had the appearance of the new. You see, in that day, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the throne of the Lamb. That's what we have to look forward to. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.